Welcome to the Vaccination Station. My name is Dave, and today I'm talking with Hallie. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Let's start by getting to know you. Can you tell me three things about yourself that you think the audience would find interesting? Sure. Um, so I'm a, I'm a registered nurse, and I also spent a fair amount of time as part of the natural birth community and for a long time really wanted to be a midwife. Um, let's see, I've been to three continents, would like to make that more, will be easier when I don't have such young children. And, um, oh gosh, it's a long story, but I'll just, I'll just, um, leave it as a interesting factoid. I was adopted by my biological father. <laughs> okay. Th that, that sounds like an entire podcast in itself. Um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> I have, I've never heard of that happening before. So that that's fascinating. Yeah. Well, you said interesting and I'm not good with small talk. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I think you got me there. So that, that's, that's great. I, <laughs> I want to talk about your experience with back vaccines. Firstly, your your family experience. What's your parents' position towards vaccines? Did they have you vaccinated as a child? Yes, I was. I was fully vaccinated per the CDC schedule um, growing up. Then, as you became older and uh, got married and you had kids. Was there anything ever that sort of shook your faith in or shook your confidence in vaccination and the, the safety and efficacy of the schedule, say, for example? Yes. Yeah, so it was it was several things coming together that undermined my faith in vaccination. Um, I went to nursing school um, in college and and began a nursing career when I was 22 in, um, in the U S which is a for-profit healthcare system. And the capitalism is just out of control. <clears throat> and my, um, idealism was quickly shattered, um, by, you know, just confronting that patient safety was not always put at the forefront of everything that we did at, like it should be. And also being, you know, a young 20 something, my thinking was, was more black and white. Um, so, well, you know, this and this, and this is really bad. So it's all bad. Um, that was part of it. Also my involvement with um, the midwifery community and the natural birth community, unfortunately um, vaccine hesitancy is just, rampant in that community or that community. Um, and, you know, people want to belong and are susceptible to group think. So, so that was another part of it. I had a very traumatic experience while I was pregnant with my first child. 
I was working as a doula. And for any listeners that don't know, a doula is someone who provides support physically and emotionally to laboring women and their partners. And I had a client, a doula client who died in the immediate postpartum and her infant died also. And I was pregnant myself at the time. And the whole thing was, was just awful. And I think everyone goes into parenting with a lot of anxiety or a fair amount at least, but I, um, in hindsight, I very much had diagnosable postpartum anxiety, but I didn't know it. And at least in the U S you know, that kind of anxiety is almost encouraged, especially in mothers like, oh, you're worried about everything. You just must be a great mom. And psychologically, I had been primed somewhat through negative experiences with the underbelly of American healthcare, as well as a lot of relationships with friends and colleagues who are vaccine hesitant. And then you throw in a little tiny vulnerable baby and a lot of anxiety. And it's really like psychologically helpful to scapegoat vaccines. Cause if you can, if, and all of this is unconscious of course, but it's psychologically appealing to that narrative that vaccines could be the cause of autoimmune issues or severe allergies or neurodiversity. Cause then all you have to do is not vaccinate and your kid will be fine. Right. So um, those are some of the factors. Thank you. That's a, a very detailed and very frank account of your journey. I can fully understand how those factors all sort of coalesced to form a, a perfect storm of, of doubt and worry that sort of eclipsed what might otherwise been your your um, your better judgment, particularly having had nursing training. When mm-hmm. you become a parent for the first time, there are so many anxieties that plague you. You've never been a parent before. You don't really, well, you don't know how it's done experientially. You don't, you might have some ideas theoretically. Right. Worried about getting it wrong. There's huge pressure in Western society on mothers to be the right kind of mum or perfect mum. Dads get away with a lot of it for some reason. I I think the, Uh um, the stereotype of the either, well, there's two main stereotypes. There's sort of the, the dad who's, who works, so much that he hardly sees his kids and then there's the dad who's involved but it's sort of a a pleasant blundering klutz who doesn't really understand stuff so mom has to do everything either way dad avoids the responsibility or the blame for whatever reason so yes yes there is huge stigma particularly uh among women's groups on social media to be the right kind of mum and there's tremendous pressure on you know, to, to get it right. Mm-hmm. You mentioned being part of the natural birthing community. And yes, I'm aware that there is a huge stream of, of anti-vax thought and, and attitude and, and pressure there. Why mm-hmm. do you think that is? Is it part of the whole naturalist good scientific slash medical is bad kind of thing? Is it just a general thing or are there other factors or what's what's the main reason do you think yeah i i think that's definitely part of it the um 
the fallacy in thinking that, you know, chemical, bad, natural, good. Um, I think it's cynicism related to, and I can only speak of the way it is in America, but here with, with not having a national healthcare system, I think there's a lot of cynicism about the healthcare field in general, specifically with obstetrics. And obviously right after having a baby is when you start having, you know, when you're confronted with the vaccine schedule as, as a parent, I think a lot of parents feel really disempowered or even traumatized by their labor and delivery experience. I think a lot of mothers feel that their autonomy has been compromised and there's this sense that they're going to make it right by not letting their child's autonomy be, you know, compromised in the way that they feel theirs was. I think feminism plays a role because it's not a big leap from believe women to believe mothers. Those, those are some of my, my thoughts. It's, I think it's a, a complex thing, but I would say those are some of the threads. Yeah. All of those factors are consistent with my experience and, and my understanding of the situation from, you know, from what I've read and, and mm-hmm. from what I've gleaned talking to people online, it's, it's strange because uh, the point has been repeatedly made by science advocates that the only reason modern Western women have the luxury to be able to dabble in these sort of more natural techniques and, and these sort of um, so-called you know, more traditional ways of doing things is because they live in a, in a society that has benefited so greatly from medical and scientific advances mm-hmm. that we no longer have most of the problems associated with the practices they're now encouraging. Right. So it's very easy to say, well, you know, women should really all go out and uh, give birth squatting over a pristine mountain stream and just <laughs> let the baby gently plop into the water uh, just as nature intended. You know, it's, it's all very well to say that, but you can only do that, of course, because society has reached the stage where you have the privilege to be able to go out and do these things. And there's you backup if something goes wrong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You can't tell that to someone who's living in a less developed country that's, say, been torn apart by war, where medical support is virtually non-existent, right. where disease is rampant, where you know a cut can kill you if you get the wrong infection um so it it's the whole thing really to my mind reeks of of privilege and Mm -hmm. ignorance born of that privilege Mm -hmm. many people in less developed countries are giving birth this way because they have to not because they want to if they were given the option they would eagerly accept what what these natural birthing people call, you know, the medical solution, because it would greatly reduce the shocking, the de- death rates in childbirth that plague right. their country. So right. it is very much a Western indulgence, a modern Western indulgence. And I'm not saying it can't be done right. And I'm not saying that people shouldn't be be free to do it. Sure. If you want to do it, do it. Just be aware 
that the fact that you have the liberty and the privilege to do this and to do it safely is all thanks to the very system that you reject as being wrong and bad. Absolutely. And also be be aware that no matter how natural you you think you've you've made it, complications can and do arise, and there is a, as I understand it, a disproportionately high mortality rate, child birth, birth mortality rate within this natural community that should really be eclipsing the medical system if it's really that good. Mm-hmm. So I think people very easily sort of allow their ideology to blind them to these to these um to these facts mm-hmm. i want to get on to your point about skepticism of the medical system mm-hmm. because of you know the aggressive for-profit approach because uh, i strongly believe that is a factor in vaccine hesitancy particularly in the u.s now as you pointed out correctly the the u.s does not have a national health care system uh, every other western country has a national healthcare system run by the government in some mm-hmm. form or another. Mm-hmm. And um, although there is a very strong push um, among some political groups in the US to say, well, for-profit healthcare is bad and it should be completely abolished. When you look at other countries, Western countries with universal healthcare, we also do have a for-profit system running mm-hmm. side by side. Mm-hmm. We didn't eradicate that. Mm-hmm. We, we provided a public option, a government option, provided for everyone regardless of of income or situation that anyone is is free to use and it's free at the point of service which is really what what you want but also we run we allow the the for-profit system to exist side by side so that if people do want to go into a nice private hospital that feels more like a five-star hotel and they want to eat caviar while um, Dr. Sergey is gently removing their spleen and, and uh, challenging <laughs> them over a glass of champagne and or mm-hmm. whatever, then they can do that. So the the options are still there. It's, it's a myth that that national healthcare equals abolition of um, for-profit healthcare and right. depending on where you stand, either a, a, a pathway to a glorious utopia or the downfall of capitalism and civilization as we know it. Which <laughs> <laughs> side of the aisle you take. Now, getting back to vaccine hesitancy, I do believe strongly that this is a key factor, particularly in the US, because in other countries, other Western countries, vaccine hesitancy is not linked to big arguments about for profit mm-hmm. healthcare. Uh, or if they are, it's only in in the more extreme wings of of the anti-vax right. community, because the the argument simply cannot be made because universal healthcare is available mm-hmm. to all, uh, either you know for a modest fee or, or free of charge. So it's it's just ridiculous to make that argument. I mean, in Australia, we have something called the pharmaceutical benefits scheme, which is a subsidy scheme by the government whereby most pharmaceuticals available on the market are heavily subsidized mm-hmm. by the government and there are rules and and there's the ways in which the government assesses new medications and decides to add them to the pbs list and of course newer medications have to wait a while and sometimes they will be more expensive and it is better to get them on private health insurance but when they're finally on the pbs list you're paying you know a tiny fraction of what you would would normally pay um the medication that that i normally uh, 
take for my conditions is is just laughable. I've got two autoimmune diseases. Um, I've got um, ankylosing spondylitis and ulcerative mm-hmm. colitis. And the medications that I, I take for them cost me about, I don't know, maybe 40 bucks a wow. month. You know, that, that's a laughable sum. And and I know from going online and, and looking at prices in the US that it would be very different. Insulin, for example, over here is, is ludicrously mm-hmm. cheap. The price of insulin in, in the US is just staggering. I, I can't get my head yeah. around it. But the Australian government goes to drug manufacturers and bargains with them for better mm-hmm. prices and then gets those better prices and then subsidizes them further so that they're even cheaper for, for Australians. So we pay a tiny fraction of what you guys mm-hmm. pay. And I mean, this is what we pay our taxes for. This is, this is the government doing what it's mm-hmm. supposed to do. So um, again, from the Australian perspective, it's, it's, it's about the government doing its job, yeah. the, the job that we, we pay it mm-hmm. for and making healthcare accessible to everyone. Cause that's the other key. It's not just about the quality of healthcare. It's about accessibility of healthcare. Mm-hmm. You can have a beautiful system that's top-notch, world-class, first-rate, but if only a tiny fraction of the population can get access to it, then it's not very helpful mm-hmm. at all because mm-hmm. then it simply becomes a, a luxury that most people can't afford. Mm-hmm. So accessibility is really the critical point, and that's why uh, a national healthcare system, universal healthcare, really is the big factor there. Mm-hmm. So... In Australia, the anti-vax community is tiny, and I really do mean tiny. Australians overwhelmingly support vaccination. We recently hit 95% coverage for childhood immunization, Mm. which is great. That's a brand new milestone. It's never been higher in in the history of our country. And that will give you an idea of just just how how weak the anti-vax movement is here. There are so few arguments that actually latch onto. They can't use the, they can't use the the big government argument because right. the government's actually the big pharma things thing. easier. And, and yeah, they can't use the big pharma argument because big pharma is is very powerfully hobbled here. <laughs> You're not allowed to advertise prescription pharmaceuticals on TV, on on radio, and this kind of thing. So they can't do any of that. Uh, when I, I've been to the States a couple of times and I, I was staggered by the number of times I, I flipped on the TV and uh, I would see an ad that says, do you have these very vague and common symptoms? You probably need our drug. Uh-huh. Talk to your doctor. Oh, Ask your doctor if our drug is right for you. Oh, yes, I did yeah. have a headache two weeks ago and I was a bit sniffly yesterday and, uh, you know, did I... I feel mildly bloated, whatever that means. Maybe. Sure. Yep. Sounds like I need your drug. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, oh, you, it- you can't watch a single commercial break without a drug commercial. It They're constant. I found it yeah. really weird and, and quite hilariously transparent as well. Who falls for this stuff? It, it's like some kind mm-hmm. of satire. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I... Part of my journey was definitely untangling science from capitalism because here it's, it's, it's the opposite of everything you were just saying about Australia. You know, the drug companies market their products shamelessly everywhere. Um, (laughs) The healthcare is not necessarily quality. I mean, we were talking about maternal mortality earlier, and it's certainly far worse in, say, sub-Saharan Africa than it is in the U.S. 
And yet the US has the highest maternal mortality rate of any developed country, the highest. And it's been getting worse since the 80s. So <laughs> there's definitely um, a quality problem with our healthcare and an accessibility problem. There's racism involved, sexism, it's, it's a hot mess. I think part of the reason the anti-vax sentiment catches on more in the US than in say Australia is because everyone can see how corrupt our system is. So it doesn't be, it's, it's, it's only a couple of leaps to like, you know, oh yeah, of course, you know, it's, it's the government is, is just trying to make money off of us. And, you know, the shops make all the pharma companies, all these, all this money, and then they make more money when we have to buy the drugs for our kids that are damaged from vaccines. Yeah. I mean, it's none of that's true, of course, but, um, but the, the soil here is fertile to lead you down that kind of thinking. Yeah. So when you come to countries like Australia or, or Germany or, or the UK, the arguments tend to be more along the lines of the natural is good and chemical is bad kind of thing, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, particularly in Europe where they have long traditions of uh, cottage industry, of um, healthcare. Uh, Europe was the birthplace of, of uh, many alternative lifestyle ideas like Steiner schools. Uh, homeopathy is quite strong there. Mm -hmm. So Europe does have a long history of involvement with the so-called natural lifestyle and the, the traditional lifestyle and the back to basics kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And to some extent that, that filters through into, into the UK and Australia as well. So over here, it tends to be the more natural is good, chemical is, is bad argument. Now, leaving mm -hmm. aside the, the very obvious fact that virtually everything on the planet is a chemical um right the whole idea of natural is better sounds really good and i actually i bought into that mentality for quite a while myself not on the issue of vaccines but on the issue of uh, electricity generation and and food production so mm -hmm. i used to be anti-nuclear mm -hmm. and i used to be anti-gmo and pro-organic mm -hmm. so i had so I can speak from personal experience about this issue, these issues. I'm not, I'm not just some sort of person sitting in a corner laughing at other people and saying, oh, well, I would never have fallen for all that nonsense. I'm so superior, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I can relate to all of this because I, I did go through it, not with yeah. regard to vaccines, but with these, with these other issues. Mm -hmm. And I came to learn more and more about nuclear energy and the history of nuclear safety, et cetera. And I came to conclu conclude that nuclear energy is actually safe and effective and very good without actually losing my confidence in renewables either. I have a, an 8.25 kilowatt solar system on my on my house roof mm -hmm. and we haven't had a power bill since that was installed because we ge just generate too much. And and in fact, we are now making a profit because we sell our the excess electricity back to the grid and our power company now owes us about, I don't know, I think it's up to about $1,600. That's um, awesome. Congratulations. That's a nice <laughs> to be in. Yeah, that's a, that's a nice position to be in. So I'm, you know, I'm not 
an extremist in any way on these. And again, I used to believe that organic was good because natural is good. And, and the logic sounds sounds pretty, you know, sensible and, and consistent. Mm-hmm. But then the more I read about organic farming and, and uh, the the inefficiencies involved and the more I read about the actual safety of things like glyphosate and, and this kind of thing, uh, the more I realized I had actually fallen into the, the sort of naturalistic fallacy where I, I think natural is good, chemical is bad. So I've been through this. I, yeah. and I understand where people are coming from. I can relate to it mm-hmm. from a personal perspective. I want to ask you, how do you think is, the best way to tackle this mentality, leaving aside the whole, you know, industrialized, capitalized healthcare mm-hmm. is oppressive and difficult and a big factor in it. What do we do about the natural is good, chemical is bad argument? Mm-hmm. How do you think we should tackle that? It's a it's a tough one, and I think I think it has different roots for different people. Um, I think sometimes religion is involved because many people are taught that the body is, you know, sinful um, or at least to be, you know, rejected in favor of the spirit um, and and that nature is not super important either, um, like my tradition is Christianity and um, I've had a big swing with that as well in terms of my, um, my views, but I came from a mode of thinking in which like caring for the environment wasn't particularly important because we were heaven bound. Right. And so in a bizarre sort of way, my, my shift towards natural is good was kind of pushing back on my religion. And a lot of that was good and is good. I mean, nature is important and valuable and, you know, it's, it's nuanced, but then it gets taken to this extreme where nature is always good. And obviously that's not true. Um, and the whole nature is good, chemicals are bad thing, I think is, I've come to view that as just a bizarre argument when it comes to vaccines, because what could be more natural than putting the virus in your body and letting your immune system do its thing? Like, that's pretty darn natural. I think we need better science literacy, better education. Formaldehyde, for example, our bodies produce that. Formaldehyde is natural. And yes, it's a chemical, but as you said earlier, everything is a chemical. So I I think, I think better education with science and also better communication of science. I think a little bit more of an offensive approach in, um, healthcare, um, schools, like, I have my bachelor's of science in nursing. Um, and I, of course, had anatomy and physiology and microbiology and pharmacology and pathophysiology and many other classes in my very rigorous program. Um, but as I was slowly going down the anti-vax rabbit hole, when someone said to me or I read somewhere 
the thing about like, well, I bet you didn't really learn about vaccines in nursing school. That that worked on me because no, we didn't learn about really the history of vaccination or the way vaccines are developed or the history of anti-vaccination or really any of that. Um, and I think any successful con works by convincing you that those other guys already conned you. Um, so I think that, I mean, most nursing students aren't going to become anti-vax. You could say the same for most medical students, um, et cetera, for every healthcare profession. But I don't think it would be a bad idea to take a few lectures and educate all of these students about this stuff so that so that they themselves don't get swayed by the rhetoric and also so that they have some intelligent responses to their future patients when they are questioning vaccines and because i think a lot of times doctors and nurses who are very pro-vax and have always been very pro-vax they don't necessarily know a helpful thing to say about like you know someone who's worried about the package insert or you know though there's so many untrue things that people believe but i think a more offensive approach for healthcare professionals would not be a bad idea i think that's all very good advice i'm a christian as well so i can relate to your position in that regard and i agree that there's there's a bit of a lazy mentality among Christians, not all Christians, of course, we're generalizing necessarily, mm -hmm. but depending on which tradition you, you follow, either we all go to heaven so we don't have to worry about earth, and some people will even believe it's going to be destroyed mm -hmm. anyway, or Jesus comes down from heaven and restores mm -hmm. earth. So either way, it's the Jesus will fix everything. Right, mentality. you're off the hook. And when you... Yeah, when you've got that, you think, oh, okay, that's cool, that's cool. I don't have to worry about Earth. It's not my responsibility. Mm -hmm. And I've been very encouraged by the growth of new theologies that actually address this from a biblical perspective, saying, actually, no, the Bible has a very strong ethos of stewardship that begins in Eden with Adam and Eve mm -hmm. and Adam tilling the ground and looking after the garden. And this continues through the law of Moses, and we see it very strongly in the laws regulating uh, crop rotation and and the use of the land and this kind of thing and it's actually a very strong uh, and powerful mm -hmm. theme so over the last few decades there's been a greater emphasis on this and some very good theological works written on that subject and i think there's a, a lot more christians actually coming around to it which is very encouraging yeah. to see so yeah, there's there is that ex sort of extremist attitude that it's not my responsibility, and in any case, it's not really a problem. And then if you go too far in that direction, of course, you end up with the it's okay, prayer will solve this medical problem, right. or prayer will protect my child from diseases, right. or prayer will heal my child now that it's caught the disease that it wasn't vaccinated for, or uh, you know, which almost you know in in some cases. Uh, leads to well at least god will hear my prayer now for my child who's who has died from a vaccine preventable disease that i did not vaccinate for so that it's sort of there's sort of different layers of it different you know extremes to it but it all comes yeah. down to an abrogation of responsibility and i think that's that's a really big problem 
in some Christian traditions, particularly the more conservative evangelical tradition, which I know is, is the dominant one in the US. Yes. So I, I definitely feel you there. That's that's definitely something I've seen in, in my own community and, and in others uh, around Australia. How do we address then someone who comes to us and says, well, I have seen big pharma punished and fined on many occasions for breaking the rules, for producing dangerous drugs and, and not telling people how dangerous they were or for falsifying results. And even though I live in a country that does have universal health care, we still use vaccines, which are made by big pharma. And I don't trust big pharma. Uh, they've been caught so many times doing dodgy stuff. Why should I trust vaccines? What, why, how, why is that trust merited? How do you prove that mm -hmm. that trust is merited? As a registered nurse, what would you say to that person? Mm -hmm. So something that I did during my shift from, no, I'm not going to ever vaccinate my children to we're going to get them all up to date. Something I did in my process was look at the vaccine schedules in other countries who have healthcare systems that I respect more than my own. And they're all fairly similar. There are some differences, but on the whole, they're remarkably similar. I looked at 10 or so countries and um, it, it took more than that, but that was the beginning of all the big pharma stuff falling apart for me because I mean, it's true that pharmaceutical companies have done a lot of shady stuff, which unfortunately fuels vaccine hesitancy. Um, but to, I, I got to the point of realizing that to continue to believe that vaccines were dangerous would be to go against what essentially every scientific authority globally has agreed on. Um, like the amount of science just eventually crushed the, 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 the shady dealings of pharmaceutical companies and um and all the pseudoscience and um lies associated with that narrative um and related to that i i read several um several articles about how vaccines actually aren't particularly profitable like you know quote unquote big pharma is not making their money from vaccines they're making it from from other drugs and vaccines are really not a, the big money maker that I once thought they were. Yeah, these are very good points to raise. I, I completely agree with you there. So the, the way we can explain it to people is look, yeah, big farmers dodgy. Big farmers done a lot of dodgy stuff. So have most other companies whose products you use every day. Car manufacturers right. have done dodgy stuff. Ford, um, produced the Pinto, which was a car that literally killed people. How? Well, it turns out if you hit it in the back end at over a certain speed, the um, 
the electrical system would break in the in the light assembly and that would cause a, a spark and the impact would rupture the fuel tank and the spark would hit the fuel and the whole thing would go up like a bomb. Mm. Why? Because Ford hadn't made it very well. And, you know, they'd, they'd taken a gamble on, on whether or not they would have to do a recall of the car mm-hmm. or payouts for compensation and they gambled very badly <laughs> so and, but people still buy fords today right. you know? yeah there's uh, no no one's so, protesting outside of ford companies yeah that's it yeah. so companies do dodgy stuff mm-hmm. we still buy their stuff yep. why well often because we have to there's right. not much much choice or because that stuff is in the past and it doesn't affect us and it didn't or it didn't affect us at the time mm-hmm the products that we're buying are completely unrelated to the dodgy product and there's there's no relevance or connection whatsoever right. so there's there's the, that argument mm-hmm. there's also the argument that as far as i'm aware and i'm i'm willing to be corrected on this no company has knowingly produced a bad or dodgy vaccine and then sold it despite knowing that it was bad and dodgy and got in trouble. Mm-hmm. Now there was a cutter, the cutter incident, which was the um, accidental contamination of some polio vaccines back in, I think was it the early part of the 20th century, mm-hmm. was it around the forties or, or fifties. I, I think um, the fifties, something like that. Yeah. They, yeah. And there yeah. was a big recall of the vaccine, mm-hmm. but that was an inadvertent contamination of a vaccine. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was not done knowingly and it was not done deliberately. Right. And the company acted very responsibly. Cutter Laboratories acted very responsibly to get on top of that problem, recall the vaccine mm-hmm. and stuff was sorted out. Mm-hmm. I'm unaware of any case in which Big Pharma has knowingly produced a vaccine that they knew was going to have of course, major problems mm-hmm. and then deliberately sold it anyway and made a ton of money and a whole bunch of people died. I, I think you are. That, that's just never. I'm just pretty sure that has never actually happened in history. So that's another line of argument that you know the scenario you are describing, although it's happened with a whole bunch of other drugs, highly profitable drugs, I might add, which right. again makes perfect sense because it, there is an incentive to rush out highly profitable drugs. Mm-hmm. It has never occurred with a vaccine, which right. to get to the next point that you raised doesn't make a lot of money anyway. Mm. Uh, I One of my infographics that I produce for the vaccination station shows just how much money Big Pharma makes from vaccines compared to all their other pharmaceuticals. Mm. And it is a laughable sum. Yeah, so, right. And people saying, oh, but look, now with the, with the rise of this pandemic, vaccine manufacturers are, are set to make a large amount of money from these vaccines. Well, of course they are because it's a pandemic and they are meeting a need and of course they're going to make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. But this is an unusual situation. It's not the norm. Right. Typically, these are a, uh, a very slim profit-making product, particularly when they're shipped to countries with universal health care where the government buys them even cheaper, argues and bargains with the, the companies and buys them very, very cheaply. Um, mm-hmm. That's why they're able to be offered free of charge to the citizens, you know. So it's these these arguments, although they sound at first, they sound logically consistent, internally consistent. They start to break down because the the real life examples aren't there. And there are too many other demonstrable facts 
that militate against these arguments and, and show how they they don't really follow through in real life. Yeah. There's also the issue that that we mentioned of, you know, big pharma uh, sometimes falsifies its studies and big pharma says this and says that, but actually knows other stuff. Um, and, you know, big pharma influences the vaccination schedule. As you pointed out, vaccine schedules throughout the world are very similar, particularly in the Western world, virtually identical. And vaccine schedules are changed in different countries. They are they are altered depending on the needs of that country. Mm-hmm. Some mm-hmm. countries have, um, they will specify on the schedule for um, indigenous populations, for example, they will spe- specify Hep B or Hep A or Hep C because those populations are particularly vulnerable to them. So that they are on the they are on the schedule specifically for indigenous people, but not for non-indigenous people. Mm-hmm. So it all depends on the country's needs, the demographics, and whatever prevailing diseases mm-hmm. uh, exist, like whether it's yellow fever or whatever, for example, which is right. not a, a disease we inoculate for in, in Australia because we don't need to. Mm-hmm. Um, or tuberculosis. Tuberculosis is vaccine is not on the Australian schedule either because mm-hmm. we don't need to. I have actually received a tuberculosis vaccine because when I was in primary school, a, a visiting teacher came over from Indonesia and she taught at our school for a term uh, and it later transpired that she was an asymptomatic tuberculosis carrier. Hmm. So our entire grade had to get vaccinated for tu- tuberculosis hmm. and the TB vaccine. I don't know what it's like now, but it was pretty horrific back then. Oh, it no. was a needle that looked like it was at least five meters long oh. um, and it, it absolutely hurt like hell mm. and it left a, a bump on my arm and also a scar that took literally years to fade away. Um, mm. So that was a horrible vaccine. Oh, but my COVID you know, shot was like the that. Are, <laughs> yeah, the, um, you know, these, these unusual case vaccines are on hand when they're needed, but yes. they're not on the schedule because they don't, don't need to be. And that's why there's variation between different countries. Occasionally governments make some silly mistakes, make some bad mistakes. Japan, of course, made the the decision to suspend recommendation of the MMR vaccine for a while because they were concerned about side effects. Those mm-hmm. concerns were unfounded. They end up delivering the multi-dose, uh, sorry, not multi-dose, single-dose vac- vaccine. So you would have to have multiple doses of a, of a measles vaccine rather mm-hmm. than the MMR. And they ended up with big outbreaks of measles as a result because it wasn't as effective as the MMR. So mm-hmm. hopefully Japan's learned from that and cleaned things up and tweaked their schedule again. Mm-hmm. So occasionally governments get a little a little bit wrong. But mm-hmm. overall, governments determine their vaccine schedule on the basis of local needs. They're not dictated to by big pharma. Right. And then we get to the, the issue of of the research and, and proving whether or not these these vaccines are safe and effective. We don't need to rely on big pharma solely for this because there are so many independent studies out there now, studies mm. conducted by government funded universities, for example, which is very common in, in Australia and, and uh, probably also the US as it is in most of the Western world. Mm-hmm. If big pharma was lying to us about vaccines, millions of studies would be available showing that independent researchers had refuted the claims of Big Pharma and proved that these vaccines are neither safe nor effective. 
But mm-hmm. again and again, independent studies with no ties to big pharma, no conflicting interests, have showed that these vaccines are indeed safe and effective, and they do the job that they are supposed to do. So we have mm-hmm. a second opinion, if you like, an independent second opinion mm-hmm. that consistently vindicates these vaccines from science professionals with no vested interests. And all of this, to me, adds mm-hmm. up to a very robust argument in favour of vaccination. And I, I just cannot see yes. how that there's any valid argument against this. The evidence is there. If you believe in evidence, if you're uh, at heart an empiricist and you say, yes, I will believe objective, provable evidence, well, it's all there. We don't need to speculate. We don't need to take big big farmer's word for it because the the evidence is all there and finally of course we've got the evidence of history you look at a graveyard from the 19th century you can see gravestones with entire families on them from two months old all the way up to you know the parents many of whom have died from vaccine preventable diseases you don't see that anymore why well vaccines they work yeah thank you yeah I think that a major obstacle for overcoming vaccine hesitancy are those um, vaccine injury stories that parents hear that, you know, just really prey on your empathy um, and, and they, they work. I think they're particularly effective with mothers, especially new mothers, because it's just a very vulnerable time of life. Um, and you or you're um, just completely focused on your child and keeping them safe. And then people, I mean, sure, there's the just random stories on the internet and the, in the propaganda films, but also like people you know, who don't seem extreme, tell you that you know, their child had a terrible reaction to DTaP or MMR or varicella, and it's it's hard for the prefrontal cortex to overcome that um, sometimes, especially when that is delivered to you when you're in such a primal state of mind about protecting your child at all costs. And also knowing that if something bad happens to your child, you will be blamed for it. Um, It's hard to fight that. It's so hard to fight that. Yeah, I can understand that because a lot of these stories purport to come from a good place. You know, Mm -hmm. I've got your best interest in mind. I've got your child's best interest in mind. Look at what happened to my brother's second cousin's friend um, who knows this guy who... um, told him to get the vaccine, then he had the vaccine and had terrible experience with it. Okay, that's not science, that's an anecdote. Mm-hmm. And unless you produce proof, it's an unsubstantiated anecdote. Mm-hmm. And did the doctor say that there was a reaction? Did have this reaction been confirmed? Has the doctor confirmed that this reaction was actually related to the vaccine, was caused by the mm-hmm. vaccine? Was there a reaction at all? Did you submit a VAERS report? Um, if so, what did it say? Okay, okay. that's great but a VAERS report on its own is not proof. Again, a VAERS report is an anecdote unless it's mm-hmm. got corroborating evidence. So what anti-vaxxers love to say is you've got to believe this story. 
Why do mm-hmm. I go, why do I have to believe this story? Because it's coming from someone who was either personally injured by a vaccine or someone who knows someone who was personally vaccinated. Okay. And, and, and why should I believe them? Well, they wouldn't lie, would they? A mother wouldn't lie about her daughter being injured by a vaccine, would she? And wow, that's powerful emotional blackmail. And right. My answer to that is yes, she would. People do it all the time. Why should mm-hmm. I believe someone, someone's unsubstantiated anecdote about an alleged vaccine injury that you can either demonstrate nor prove in any objective empirical way? Why should I believe that? Mm-hmm. You are using emotional leverage to try to get me to believe an unsubstantiated anecdote. I refuse mm-hmm. to accept that. People mm-hmm. lie about stuff all the time. People lie about stuff they don't need to lie about. And there are so mm-hmm. many cases on the internet of anti-vaxxers being caught lying about this stuff. It is mm-hmm. trivial to, to find them. And sometimes they're even called out on social media by their own friends and family. Mm-hmm. These, these lies exist all over the internet. They are easily exposed. They are easily debunked. So don't tell me, oh, you've got to believe this mother because a mother wouldn't lie. Yes, she would. Yes, they can. Yes, they do. Mm-hmm. Most or and she's simply she wrong. She may not be lying. Yeah. Right. She may be completely right. mistaken. I'm perfectly willing to accept that she's she's responding to the situation in good faith based on the extent of her own knowledge and her own experience. That's fine. Not everyone is lying. Some people are mistaken. So yeah. the anti-vaxxer will try to trap you between these two extremes. Either it's true yeah. or she's or she's lying. Well, no, there's a third way. She could be mistaken. Um, right. Or a doctor could also be mistaken. Sometimes doctors are mistaken about reactions and they come back a bit later after getting a second opinion. They say, well, our specialist looked at this and said, no, it wasn't actually the vaccine. It was something else, pre-existing mm-hmm. condition that was triggered mm-hmm. by something you, your kid had picked up, a little bug your kid picked up in the playground two weeks earlier. Mm-hmm. And we know that because this particular uh, germ takes a couple of weeks to manifest and this has coincided with the vaccine and, and that's all there is to do it you know mm-hmm. correlation is not causation so right. i don't have to believe these claims these anecdotes mm-hmm. there's no obligation on me to believe that mm-hmm. when you produce solid evidence backed by doctors backed by specialists yeah i've if it's if it's demonstrated and verified by relevant professionals i will believe it Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Do Mm -hmm. vaccine reactions occur? Yes. Do serious vaccine reactions occur? Yes. Do dangerous vaccine reactions occur? Yes. But they occur so infrequently as to be vanishingly small. The risks are utterly negligible. And and that's that's the key point. So no, I'm not under any obligation to believe your unsubstantiated anecdote, no matter how bad you think it makes me look. Oh, you look and sound like a horrible person for not believing this mother with her vaccine injury story about her daughter. Fine. Mm -hmm. I don't care. That's that's (laughs) not on me. That's on you for deciding I'm a horrible person because I refuse to believe something without evidence. I can live with that. No big deal. Um, But it can take a bit of... uh, emotional energy and and maybe a bit of intellectual courage to, to take that stand and hold it in the face mm-hmm. of repeated bombardment by people. And mm-hmm. I, I get it a lot from anti-vaxxers, you know, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I'm used to it now. I'm, okay. I don't care. doesn't yeah. bother me. Yeah. Right. Um, so at some point you have to make a decision between accepting scientific evidence or deciding that other people's opinions of you is, is more important. And for mm-hmm. some people, that's that's what it comes down to, whether they, they know it or not. Mm-hmm. The anti-vaxxers certainly know it, which is why 
they pile on the emotional pressure. You're a bad no. person if you don't believe this. No, I'm not. I am just a sensible person asking for evidence the same way as, you know, you would ask for evidence if, if your spouse came and told you there's a pink elephant in the garden. Right. You'll want to see it. So what's your experience then having come out of this sort of mindset where you, you veered into vaccine hesitancy, mm-hmm. what's your experience talking with other people now that you've come out of that, uh, talking to people who are, who are still in that? Has it been difficult to explain to them why you made the decision to change and how have they responded to you? So I just went uh, public with it, but literally a week ago after I got my um, COVID vaccine, um, it was a deep, dark secret for a long, long time, which was a pretty heavy burden um, emotionally. And a lot of that was related to my being a nurse. Like I didn't want everyone to think I was an idiot. Um, And you know, it's just such a hot topic. Like it's, as you know, the, the discussions on social media, especially are, they're not productive. Um, so it was, it was very closely guarded for a very, very long time. And as I started questioning things and moving towards getting my kids all vaccinated, I did start telling small groups of people. Like, um, I joined a Facebook group called crunchy skeptics and, um, it's just a delightful group of people, many of whom had walked a similar path and they were very empathetic and compassionate. So that was, that was really great and helpful. I think one of them directed me to these essays, but there's a a website you're probably familiar with voices for vaccines and, um, there's a large set of essays there of personal stories from people who had been anti-vax and um, changed their mind. And that was very um, helpful um, and gave me courage to move forward. So with people who had gone through something similar, they were very empathetic and compassionate. When I, um, and the friends in real life that I've told have been empathetic and compassionate as well. Now those are just your average people though, who have vaccinated their kids according to the CDC schedule. So when I shared on Facebook a week ago that, you know, I have this yay, I got my COVID shot and um, you should too. And oh, by the way, I have an anti-vax past and I'd be happy to talk to you about it. If you have any questions or hesitations, I I, like considering the pandemic, I really started feeling a moral responsibility to share this personal history because I think that I can engage with some open-minded vaccine hesitant people in a way that might move the needle for them um, as opposed to, you know, the, the pro vaccine memes on Facebook that are just like, they might be snarky and funny, but they're not going to actually help anybody. So anyway, I post this and received mostly very positive feedback, 
but you know i got some of those the the wow <laughs> reaction from some uh anti-vax or vaccine hesitant friends or acquaintances and some people were kind of shocked um no one has said anything like obnoxious or you know i haven't been called any names or um i mean i don't know perhaps i'm being talked about behind my back in anti-vax facebook groups i don't know but um there were some there was some shock and some questions and and from a few people just genuine curiosity which i appreciated and hopefully you know we'll be able to have good conversations because i you know totally understand where they're coming from um so a little bit of shock a little bit of really what they what people who took any issue at all they took issue with me suggesting a covid vaccine as a way to love one's neighbor as jesus taught um and they were saying that i'm implying that they are not loving their neighbors if they don't get vaccinated um so that was that was the biggest um sticking point for the people that have engaged me so far that's really interesting to hear about your experience certainly doesn't surprise me the reactions what that that you've received but it's very encouraging to hear that there were people who were willing to sit down and listen and say okay tell me about your experience and I'm curious to know how you arrived at this new position crunchy skeptics is a is a really great group i'm pretty sure that's where we met actually oh yeah <laughs> I'm in a few yeah, because of, we're both members, yeah. yeah. So. <clears throat> and I, yeah. I advertised the vaccination station there, and and you piped up and said, "Oh, be willing to talk about my story in a little bit." So yeah, it, it is a terrific group. There's a nice, healthy diversity there. There's people with you know crunchy views that I personally disagree with, but the fact that we can all agree on essentials like vaccines is is what makes the group really great mm -hmm. and the mm -hmm. other stuff just tends to be minor peripheral non-essential stuff so sure you know it's yeah. it's perfectly harmless let's have our disagreements on that and and choose right. our own path on other stuff like this. this is great country skeptics for for anyone who's listening country skeptics is a great group to get into because there are plenty of people from an alternative lifestyle background or, or alternative this and alternative that who can very much relate to people who are more skeptical of big pharma or the uh, so-called medicalized way of doing things, but are still very strongly pro-vax and, and pro-medicine in many other ways. So it's a good place to be if you are coming from that group, from that, from that mindset, and you want to talk with people who still have a foot in that camp, but support mm -hmm. vaccination. A, mm -hmm. a very non-judgmental place to be and there's some great people with professional expertise to talk to who can help out and clarify things and there's some really good people who can talk to about their personal experiences and and the road that they've taken to arrive at where they are with regard to vaccines so mm -hmm. i definitely encourage uh people to to join that yeah really great group it's um it's a place where people can be nuanced um, and complex, which is really helpful. Um, I think especially in parenting circles, they can be very black and white, like, oh, well, if you're if you're crunchy at all, then you know, you don't vaccinate and you cloth diaper and you 
you will you know breastfeed for a really long time and if you're a mainstream parent well you know obviously you're vaccinating and you know you're going to use a stroller you're not going to put your baby on your back like it's very like you either do these things or you do these things and you can't blur the lines at all and you know people just aren't like that <laughs> that's not the way humans are so crunchy skeptics is a good place to be a complicated person with a story if you had to um if you had to say just one thing to a vaccine hesitant person Mm -hmm. about vaccines uh, one thing that you think might help to to plant a seed and help them to change their perspective and, and see a better way what would that one thing be the first thing that comes to mind is that i'm not going to be scared off by any of their questions and that it's okay to have questions i was i think it was a really dangerous thing for me that I was fed this idea that, you know, you're not allowed to question vaccines. And I question everything. That's just my nature. So, and being young and, and naive in some ways, um, that made me unnecessarily more suspicious than I should have been. I, I, I wish that there had been someone to tell me like, you can ask any question you want and, you know, let's, let's talk about it. And have you, have you seen this study and, you know, oh, I just found out that. So like one of the, the anti-vax things was, you know, there's three times as many vaccines today than there was in the eighties and oh my gosh. And, um, but that's not particularly helpful or important when you realize that the number of antigens in today's vaccines is way less than in the 80s because we have purer products. Um, so, so just something like that, like validating questions like, yeah, that sounds scary. Like more shots in your kid's leg. Like I get it. Like it's, it's really anxiety producing. It's, it can be really scary. I have a story about that. Like, can I tell you my journey? Just, you know, just making them feel, hopefully erasing any sense of shame they might have about having these kinds of questions and letting them know that all questions are okay. Let's just make sure we're, um, we're going to good sources and that we're getting real information and, um, Let's just have an open dialogue where there's no shame involved and um, we just talk as, as people who all want the same thing for our kids, which is the best for them. I think that's a, a really great approach. It's a healthy approach. It's intellectually robust and it's also empathetic, which of course is a real key to, to winning people. You mm -hmm. don't want to come across as being somehow intellectually superior or, or having achieved you know a level of knowledge that these these people can't aspire to or you've, you've you're somehow now better than them because you're you're vaccinating right it's very important to also to meet people where they are to not have too many expectations about mm -hmm. the amount of um the amount of pushback that you should expect or the extent to which they will agree with you it's best to be reasonable and realistic in your expectations and remind yourself that you know everyone 
initially comes from that same space of being concerned about their family, concerned about the children, concerned about their own health. Mm-hmm. And that's all, what we're all striving for. That's the common goal. And it's the question of how we get there and mm-hmm. which methods are the best and the most justified. Thank mm-hmm. you very much for spending all this time with me, Hallie. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. This was wonderful. I really appreciate it. Thank you.